It is a giant, first of all, it's an industrial giant, it's an enormous size. I f- forget the acreage it covers, but it covers a, a very big acreage. And here you had this vast complex, this big, this biggest shipbuilding firm in the world, the biggest marine engineering workshop in the world, implanted on the town of Belfast in the midst of a largely agricultural, small peasant uh, country like Northern Ireland. The linen industry was, well, well, it was big, it was comparatively small scale compared with uh, shipbuilding. Shipbuilding was a worldwide in- industry. So we had this vast uh, complex of shipbuilding and engineering put down uh, on the edge of a rural uh, area like Northern Ireland. I think this is why he called it giant in the leg. And also, of course, it, it, it exerted the giant influence politically and uh, economically upon the north of Ireland and in the city of Belfast. Since the middle of last century, 1,710 keels have been laid in the shipyards of Belfast. Ships have evolved from square riggers to the ironclad battleships, from clippers with their clouds of sail to the steamers which offended those of a traditional background who maintained they wouldn't work. There were the grand ocean liners, the pride of Cunard, of P&O and of Shaw Savile. And today, the huge bulk carriers, almost obsolete before they float out of the dry dock. In its heyday, Belfast was famed as one of the great shipbuilding centres of the world. Its workers earned hard their reputation, which put the seal of quality on the vessels which were towed from their cradles on the lagoon, past the shores of Belfast Lock and out to the open sea. During this time, change came rapidly. In 1859, a young Englishman named Edward Harland bought over part of the shipyards which to this day bear his name. He won the contract for a series of clipper steamers from the Bibby Line. Later, he was joined by a Captain Gustav William Wolfe from Hamburg. Soon, iron square riggers had proved themselves. Then followed the liners such as the Adriatic and the Baltic, which with their long, slim hulls, single funnels and four masts were to revolutionise the shipbuilding industry. By early this century, ocean liners, cargo ships, steam vessels of every kind followed one another into the shipping lanes of the world. Then came the First World War and battleships to take on the might of the Kaiser's Navy, huge ironclads with a firepower unknown till then. Within a generation, the skills and crafts needed to produce sophisticated, technically advanced ships had become well established amongst the workers who lived in East Belfast or along the Shankill. But before this, knowledge and the men who had it had to be imported. The first ship, ship uh, was built in Belfast or way back in the 1790s by a man called Ritchie. So you had really the first uh, group of migrant workers coming in, shipwrights that he brought from Greenock. And it was from places like Greenock, from the Clyde side, from the Tyne side, from Merseyside, uh, that the, the original skilled workers uh, that formed the labour force of shipbuilding in Belfast all came. So, well, the shipbuilding industry developed slowly until Edward Harland decided to buy out a firm that he was working for in Belfast, Hickson's, and he was a great developer. He was a typical mid-Victorian capitalist, you know, real... Well, he's conservative in politics and believes in all the rules of capitalist competition, technology, development, expansion. And his uh, design to develop shipbuilding in Belfast 
especially when they began to build more and more iron ships. The wooden ships had gone by then, and when they were developing Belfast Harbour and building the, on the reclaimed land that's now the Queen's Island, these were the great developments in Edward Harland's days when he uh, set up the firm. And of course, um, at that time, the requirement would have been for skilled men, so presumably yes. more and more people would have been imported. Oh, yes. I mean, you, if he was looking for skilled men, for shipwrights, for engineers, for draftsmen, for um, any of these um, skilled men required in shipbuilding, he certainly wouldn't get them in County Down or County Antrim or County Fermanagh. So he got them from... He, he was from Scarborough himself, so he got them from... Tyneside, from the northeast coast, from Merseyside, from um, Clydeside, from the shipbuilding centres of Britain, they came. And this would have been a mini plantation of Ulster in the strictest it, sense. Uh, strictly, well, that's a good way to put it, the mini plantation of Ulster, really. It was an industrial migration. My great grandfather came from Preston to Belfast uh, to work as a boilermaker, and uh, then what was the then shipbuilding? My own grandfather he then served his time in Belfast uh, a place firm called Coates he then finished up and joined uh, Harnell Wolf as a boilermaker finishing up there uh, as a foreman boilermaker in the later years as he retired uh, my father then uh, following the old custom of being a boiler he came into the Harnell Wolfs too in 19... Or seven, I think, as apprentice boiler maker, and f- finished this time, and then joined the forces. He was on the army for a period from nineteen up to nineteen eighteen, and after the war, he rejoined the firm uh, as a boiler maker and served there, worked there until he retired, uh, until he died rather than nineteen sixty two. I think it was somewhere in that range. And then you're in the yards now, and I and think your I, son is also... I am now in the yard. I came into the yard following the tradition of the previous grandfather and great-grandfather. I came in then also to serve my time as a boilermaker, and I'm still there up to... That's from 1936 on at the present moment, I'm still there. And your son is... The son, he joined the firm in 19... Uh, I forget the date now but however uh, he joined not as a boilermaker he broke the tradition as boilermaker he joined as a fitter served his time to engineering and he there he is now there in the firm at the moment as a foreman in the engineering department My father worked in Harleywells as a labourer in the shipyard and he was about 40 to 45 years at it he put my brother to his trade at it Richard he served his time at it and when it came my turn, they decided that I would go as a welder too. So I served my time on it too. Did it ever occur to you to do something else or indeed leave the country, go somewhere else? No, it did not, no. So it's quite a natural thing for natural you to go thing, to Natural thing to follow suit of my own family. Well, the people that worked work on a ship, when she is launched, whether it's only 600 tonnes or 60,000 tonnes, there is always a considerable pride because if uh, anybody has, has witnessed a launching and uh, just took a surmise of the faces of the ship as the bottle is broke over the bow and the ship slides down into the water and you see it float away, you have a feeling that this is an accomplishment. This is something that has been made by the skill of people's hands and has been moulded 
by the skill of people's hands. And even today, with all the, the, uh, the modern conveniences that there is in shipbuilding, the pride, still is, the pride still is retained, although a certain amount of the craftsmanship has naturally disappeared. Today, I wouldn't go to look at a lunch. You know what I mean? Because I've seen so many of them. And it has lo- uh, to me, it has lost its value because it's become a familiar... The old term of familiarity, well, you get please content, you get just no interest in it. It's, it's just another boat going out down the way, another ship going out of the dock. Same with the first ship that floated out of the dock, but we were all up watching it and it was full of enthusiasm to see a big boat never floating out like this before. But today, they're floating them out, nobody bothers it, nobody takes any, takes any attention to them, now they just come and go, stay, you know what? So, like, the romance of the thing... Uh, to my mind, all this peters out because of the uh, repetition of the, the same thing happening all the time. But there must still be a sense of achievement. Oh, yes. Well, uh, a sense of achievement, I would say, is a bit different to being romantic about the thing. We're very proud of ships we built here. Very, very proud. We're very proud of, of, the, of the tradesmanship that goes in them. The finishing of the ships, you'll not get a better finish anywhere in this world. As a finishing off a boat in Hornibals. Well, would that apply today? I mean, you're dealing with these huge bulk carriers which really don't have much personality compared to the, the boats of the past. Well, there, there's no problem there, Brian, in building these here at all. We can build anything from here, East Belfast and Ulster here or Northern Ireland. We can build anything. Well, do you get the same sense of pride with, say, the bulk tanker that we can almost see from your back door that's lying there yes the we do indeed Brian we get the same sense we get, we're all proud of it anything we do we're proud of it down here in the city of Belfast there were certain um, parts better off houses where the skilled men lived and less well off houses where the unskilled lived um, now in the shipyards in Harlem Woolf's door um, skilled men and unskilled men there was a big there was a very very big um, difference in social outlook at one time. There was a big difference in wages. If you go back to the early part of this century, you probably find that the skilled man would be earning, perhaps, I'm talking before the 1914 war, earning two pounds a week, and the unskilled man was lucky to get a pound. So that was, he had twice the wages, the differential was, was enormous. Not so enormous today, because a great number of uh, new unskilled jobs have risen. Uh, so you had the, you had certainly distinct class differences um, in the uh, in the early days of this century. As I say, skilled men tended to live in better houses. Um, the other thing, of course, was that within Harlem Wolf itself, the people dressed differently, and in this sense, that um, the the fitter who would regard himself as the aristocrat of labour, making engines and so on would wear the collar and tie, you see, and he would regard himself as entitled to wear the collar and tie. Uh, whereas the maybe the fellow who was a red letter, slopping red lead on the hull of a ship, uh, he wouldn't think it worth his while to wear a collar and tie because he would go home at night, unless he, he was very lucky, he'd go home covered from head to foot with this red lead. <laughs> and um, there, was, there were these differences. People who were, for example, cabinet makers, very nice, clean job, uh, could go to work in a reasonably decent, um, clean suit of clothes, put on a white coat or what have you in the workshop and work away there. The, the pattern maker was the uh, same kind of a bloke. He would work in a fairly clean job, be considered because of the traditions of craft and skill 
and the what you would call the degrees of respectability considered um, a fairly respectable kind of workman. The respectability was um, more or less determined by the dress. The better you were dressed, the neater you were dressed, apparently the greater respectability you could command. Oh. And so the various trades had various degrees of respectability. Of course, the, man the electrician was also very respectable. Is that so? Oh, yes. The, the man with real authority in the yard, well, it wasn't he the gaffer, the, the, the head foreman who wore the bowler hat? There was a whole hierarchy of uh, gaffers, as you say, from the petty fellow who wasn't allowed to wear a bowler hat to the chap who graduated to the bowler hat. They all wore bowler hats, uh, all the supervisors from the assistant charge hand right up to the managing director. Well, the bowler hat was the nearest thing they could get to the safety helmet, you see. Whether it was any way um, safe or not, or any safer than a cloth cap, it'd be hard to say. Probably a little bit safer. But nowadays, you see, they wear the uh, the proper safety helmet, and everybody who's on a dangerous job has to wear one of these uh, safety helmets. But certainly the bowler hat was the, um, was the mark of uh, authority in Harlem Wolves. Just how strict was this authority? You get the impression of these head foremen being really authoritarian characters, the sergeant majors of the yard. Yeah, they probably were um, the sergeant majors of the yard, but they varied, you see. Everybody isn't of that nature. Some fellows are pretty soft-hearted and gregarious. Others are authoritarian. So they would vary from place to place. Um, I think that I think that things changed. I went down there about... What about ten years ago to see Billy Hull? Billy was the um, was the convener of Shop Stewards and the Engine Works, and I went down and we were having a walk around, and I, I mean he seemed to have more uh, authority than the foreman, than the head foreman even. So things must have changed considerably. I think that the unions have um, ha- have made a big change post war. Anyhow, that is since the Second World War, but in the early days there certainly was a good deal of. Um, of uh, supervisory authority. Well, the head foreman, he was the sergeant major, as I say, in, in the army, but he was the boss and he ruled the roost and uh, it, you just, well, there's the hook, you hang your coat on and get on to your work, that's it, stay, you know. It must have been a very authoritarian regime in oh, those it days. Was, it was very, he was a man of authority. He had the power to hire, fire, and you didn't turn the word on him, you didn't look sideways on him, you, out to get you on, Stan. Of course, in the conditions then, there was always, uh, we'd say, maybe ten men outside to get written to take your job. So that was the conditions. Like, there was always more men outside to get than what there was actually working. You know? What about the, the family side of things and, indeed, the, the comradeship of the yards and the sense of community? Well, in the earlier days, uh, going back to the earlier days and the younger days, uh, there was a sense more of a sense of familyship then because he had parents the fathers in the yard whose sons were following him through like his father brought his son behind him, his son, he was following his, the same trade as the father, which meant it was more of a family affair then and uh, if you got into trouble with the boss then, well, you didn't have to de- only deal with the boss, you had to deal with your mother when you come home at night because your father told your mother and then you were in trouble then at home because you're out of sorts with the boss at work, you see, and this is the way it, it was a uh, sort of way uh, worked out. Would, has unionisation today uh, taken away from the, the sense of loyalty that there once was? Now, taken away from the sense of loyalty, you say, well, it, um, it has to a point 
taking a sense of the loyalty way, because you have a split loyalty now where men are trying to be loyal to their unions instead of having the loyalty to the, the old firm of Harlan and Wolf that they used to have, you know what I mean? Like the loyalty changes because the unions are coming in and uh, with the uh, unions playing a greater part in the firm now and being utilised more with their with the methods of production brought in, trying to introduce the uh, worker participation effort, uh, you find that the men will lean to the union rather than lean to the production side of the firm, you know what I mean? Well, I suppose if I look back to my own experience, the first of it when I went into the yard in the early 30s, the yard was in uh, dire straits then because of the Kilsant smash, which is a much too complicated thing to explain here. But they had very little money, they didn't have many orders, and the then chairman had to go and see the then Prime Minister and ask for financial help so that they could continue to pay the wages and buy the materials. You're, you're talking in, in remote terms, but in fact you're referring to your father talking to Lord Craig Avon. That's Perhaps you, you could put a little bit of flesh in that skeleton, could you? Well, they were building ships, I think, called the Britannic and Georgic, from memory, for White Star Line, and uh, it had reached a stage when they weren't going to be able to pay the wages for more than about three weeks or so ahead. I was only a schoolboy, well, just out of school then. I really based some of this on memory, but I know that the condition was very, very serious. But there's a whole tapestry of political implication running throughout the history of the yards. Uh, your, your father with Lord Craig Avon, uh, Lord Pirrie before him, and so on. T tell me a little bit more about this. Well, Lord Pirrie wasn't entirely acceptable in a political sense in the North because uh, he was a liberal, and, um, and I remember on one occasion hearing that he was pelted with rotten apples and so on at the Lanstranra boat uh, arrival point. And um, in so fact, why was this? Sorry, why was this? Uh, because. Uh, he thought that uh, it would be a good idea that Ireland would be all in one piece and not uh, divided and the workers in the yard were of an opposite persuasion and they therefore regarded him as uh, someone that they didn't like very much and that was why they pelted him with apples and so on and rotten fruit. He thought that he might have to get out eventually and so he began to buy shipyards on the Clyde and in fact at one stage Harland and Wolfe had enormous interests on the Clyde uh, almost comparable to what they had in Belfast. Spinning over the years to some extent brings us into the, the Second World War. Now this was a boom time for the yards. How did the war actually affect the place? Well, I would say, remembering that the other big yard in Belfast had gone bust in 1935 and Harlands couldn't have been maybe very far behind them and many other British yards were closing down, the, world, the Second World War really must have saved a lot of shipyards in these islands from going uh, down the drain. Uh, as far as Harland and Wolf were concerned, they at one stage were doing 10% of the national output. They were employing in Belfast alone 30,000 men. I remember a flower class corvette going down Belfast Loch every other Friday. 11 aircraft carriers, a remarkable output of tonnage, but of course for an artificial market.
But this must have made Harland and Wolves a prime target for the German bombers. Did you actually sustain much damage during the war? Yes, the yard was very, very badly damaged. First of all, it's only fair to say it was a very legitimate target. Uh, the defences were totally inadequate because I think a lot of people thought the bombers would never arrive. But in the months of April and May in 1941, they came in some strength and plastered the place. It was 60% wiped out and uh, it took two or three years to get it all going again. But even so, the war was something of a saviour, as you were saying earlier, for British shipbuilding in general. It, it almost would seem that the, the, the war came in the nick of time to save the shipbuilding industry. Yes, I think that is fair to say. It's, uh, of course, it has to be a guess, because some of the yards might have struggled on, but they were all in dire trouble, and... Uh, they were all needing help from their governments, and um, over here we certainly had considerable assistance from the then government. Well, how did things look in 1945 as the war ended and the world was returning to normality? Well, of course, the conditions were quite incredible. Uh, we got owners coming to us from France, from Holland, from other countries whose yards had been devastated, and there was an artificial boom of enormous proportions. And I can remember at one stage we had something like five and a half years' work ahead of us. This made the unions a bit cocky. They thought they were on the pig's back, and they did, I think, make some rather heavy demands which uh, the industry in the long run wasn't able to sustain. Yes, there is a history, of course, of union difficulties, but the unions always point out uh, the, the bad management of the yards, and uh, I, I think you yourself at one stage were the only university-qualified member of the board of directors. So it can't have been all, the fault can't all have been on one side. No, that's quite right, and I don't want to be accused of union bashing. We had plenty of uh, problems with them, and they had some problems amongst themselves. I mean, the fighting that went on between the boilermakers and the shipwrights had to be seen to be believed. But uh, management, I'm sure, could have been better. I think also one of the big problems was, of course, there were far too many unions, and there still are, in my opinion, uh, there aren't as many now as there used to be, but at one stage I remember something like 19 trade unions involved in shipbuilding, and in Sweden there were two, and in Japan one, and so that was a great disadvantage. Could I turn to a personal note and ask you a, a fairly direct question? Your family has been involved with the development of the shipyards for several generations, and yet in the 70s you had to sit back and watch outsiders brought in to run the yards. Now, how did this affect you personally, and indeed, what feelings do you have about the, the, the way the place was run? I can remember very well when we saw the crisis coming up, I'd just taken over the chair. In fact, I'd only been chairman for a year, but I was left holding an almost dead child. I went to see Terence O'Neill and told him about it all. He was very sympathetic and said, well, you can hardly be blamed for it. It's the accumulation of several years of of uh, problems and um, then I had to go and see Brian Faulkner. He wasn't quite so sympathetic I'm afraid and he insisted on somebody coming in and uh, taking over if we got the money that we needed which was three and a half million pounds uh, that was two and a half million that had been lost building the Canberra and a million which had been loaned to a Norwegian ship owner who'd sadly died and it took quite a long time to clear up his estate and although we eventually got the money back we uh, didn't get it all back in one piece. So Faulkner set the pace and brought in uh, Mr Malabar and uh, subsequently a man called Ivar Hoppe was brought in and uh, a lot of people came and uh, I'm glad to say that they all went which proved that that wasn't what was needed. 
What about the terms, the contracts that were negotiated with these people? There's been quite a lot of mud flying around since. Well, I can tell you something for sure. They got a hell of a lot of more money than we ever did for the years that we put in. I'm not quite sure what the conditions were in each case, but I know in one case the man was given £65,000 a year on a 10-year contract paid into a Swiss bank uh, without any tax. And uh, even the top men in British industry were never treated like that. But now the yard is back in local hands, so to speak. Oh, yes. Is, is this going to be the key to its survival? Well, uh, it's interesting to see that uh, the... Uh, two fellows who are running the place with Sir Brian Morton were men that we picked out years ago as young men and I've been delighted to see that and I think that Sir Brian Morton is putting the seal of quality on the place again which it had lost when it was in the hands of some of these itinerants. The quality of leadership has changed uh, in my opinion because when you were under the Victorian re regime like coming from the Rebic, old Sir Frederick, he was the boss man he knew everybody practically all down the line, and he could walk round the firm and command authority, no matter where he went. You see, like he, he would, uh, he'd be recognised, and he made himself recognised. He made himself felt. He made himself seen, because he he moved around the firm a lot. Well, that attitude among our present trend today is not the same, because I think in one aspect, our chairman today are so much involved in. Uh, maybe political and technical things relative to government concerns that they haven't the time to spend lower down the line and pass around the firm and get to know the individuals. He, in the early days, old Sir Frederick knew, he knew nearly every man in the yard, you know, from right down to the very sweeper, you know. But in the he wasn't there, the sweeper wasn't there, and he came down, he missed him, you know. So much attention he paid to the personal aspect of the thing. But that, as I say, because of the whole change in the spectrum of... Uh, well, what government controls and things like that there and makes, puts more work on the, the more senior men to have to attend maybe government meetings and attend all these things, you know, which in the olden days, well, the boss, Sir Freddie yeah. Heavenly, dealt with the ship owners and dealt with the orders and that was it. And in the years between, there's been a large amount of criticism of, of the leadership, especially when uh, foreign uh, people were brought in to run the yards. What, what do you think about all that? Well... When they say a transitional period from the old regime to the new, we had a new general manager who came in with authority to introduce a more modern system of shipbuilding, which he himself had introduced in other yards uh, on the continent. Now, he made a sweeping change because when he came in, he brought a whole team of... Uh, technical men in with them for all over the whole firm. He brought, like there were Swedes and Europeans and he brought them all into the firm. Well, that was a good thing to do. He was bringing in and he bought in the best of brains to run the place. But I think one thing he, mistake he made and he forgot that he was dealing with the human element and as a result, with bringing all this new team in to right over the top of the old team. Well, naturally enough, the older school and the younger of the older school were a bit perturbed about it because it meant that they were being pushed away to the one side and this, this new team was coming in to run the place to make it work. And the experience of all the older school and the 
younger, younger of the older school was being sort of like dissipated because they weren't being utilised in the same... It wasn't being used as the way it should have been when they were introducing their new methods, new computerised methods of running the firm. And as a result, it bred a wee bit of, I would say, discontent right from workers, foemen, management to a certain level, which meant that uh, it wasn't a good thing at the time. It didn't turn out to be a good thing because it did seem to fall down around them. But that was, I think, one of the major mistakes that was made. If he had have paid more attention to the existing uh, experience, uh, technical experience and experience, production experience he already had there, mm-hmm. and utilised those more with slowly with his new, new uh, setup. I think he might have been a bit more successful, but I think he just moved too quickly, and then as a result, the human element, well, you know, the human element is the most important part in the whole setup, and if you upset the human element, well, your production and everything goes anywhere because you, you lose. This is where the loyalty broke down, and you lose the loyalty of the worker, and you lose the loyalty of your foreman, you lose the loyalty of your management. Let's turn to another aspect of things. We're talking a lot back about the characters in the yard. Oh, yes, yes. Tell me, tell me again about them. Well, there's stagers are good characters. There's one called we call him Killer Murray. Killer Murray. Killer Murray. Yeah. Where did he get that reputation from? Well, he was, in the in the old days, he used to box bear handed, and he was a good man with bear hands. So he got the reputation of Killer Murray. That was his name. Then there was an old hand called McGaggy. They called him Buckets. He was a boxer. And there was an or there's an or big fella now down the yard, big strapping big fella, and they call him horse. They're all stagers, all good fellas. You get a lot of nicknames down in the yard. They yards. do, they do. They You're do a bit of a character do. yourself. Do you have a nickname? Oh, and they just call me on it. That's. I just as long as they don't call me too early in the morning, Brian. That's the main thing. <laughs> it's it's one of these in big industrial complexes, the Queen's Island, that is. Harlan & Wolves wasn't the only firm there. There were a number of other firms, which you might say were satellites of Harlan & Wolves, and there were a number of independent firms. It was a big industrial complex, an industrial site. So in that sense, it was a world on its own. Um, I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't part of the public thoroughfare. You just didn't walk in. You could walk in all right, but it, there were times when they could have closed the gates and shut the whole place off. You see, there were only two or three places where you could enter into the Queen's Island. But this must have created traditions and cultures all identifiable with exclusively with the yards. Well, the shipyard men themselves had their own uh, cultures, their activities. They had all kinds of things. There were all kinds of people working there, Twenty to 30,000 people. They were evangelists, holy rollers, and there were sinners. And uh, the holy rollers used to try and convert the sinners to their way of, of thinking. They held prayer meetings at lunchtime and read the Bible. And this was on a large scale, was it? Here and there, you'll have these little meetings, you see. And they would all stand singing up to heaven if the weather was good. If the weather was bad, they would get into shelter and read the Bible and heads bowed down in prayer. And maybe on the other side of the of the workshop, there'd be fellows with a pitch and toss school playing, you see, or playing cards, gambling, or things like that. In fact, the the gambling business was almost a profession. There was a kind of mini-mafia, I understand, from round about East Belfast, who used to come in, fellas who didn't work at all, who used to come in and control these gambling schools and take their rake off and then go off home in the afternoon. 
There were also lots of bookies runners, fellas who took the bets and went up and placed them with the bookie, paid out the next morning. There were gentlemen who ran retail businesses selling cigarettes, chocolates, tobacco and brought in their supplies every day and sold them. So all kinds of things went on like that. Well, of course, they had they had the cultural activities. They had football teams and dart clubs, and they had a choir, I think, the, the Harlandic choir. So you could say that with 20,000 or more people all working together, you would have a vast variety of things being done, even during the day, even during the, 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 the lunch break, these things would be uh, going on, gambling and praying. All forms of human life and life activities. All sorts of things going on. Although Harlan Wolf built passenger ships prior to the Titanic, and incidentally, they not only built them for to fly under the British flag, but built them to fly under the German flag and various other continental countries. The last uh, ship that was built for uh, a continental country was the, uh, the Germans. And uh, the Titanic led to a great deal of publicity for Harlan Wolf's perhaps some good, but the biggest part of it in latter years to be perhaps bad. That was when she sank. And when she sank, created because a problem of confidence yes, it, it in the yard. Created a problem, yeah. It created a problem of confidence in the yard. And uh, eventually Harlan Wolf's got their confidence back in the shipbuilding world, and they had a, a basic flow of more passenger liners to build. And uh, this carried on right up to the last war. But what about the Titanic? You knew her, you worked on her. I worked on her on her engines mostly. And uh, there was no welding in those days. It was all cast iron work, you know, and everything. And everything had to be riveted uh, together? I, I riveted. My father was a riveter. Oh. And I I was born in Barron Furnace. And 1885, I was only about uh, three years old then. Left then, they come up to Harnons and they started in the shipyard as a riveter, as a shell So you had shipbuilding in your uh, blood? Oh, uh, oh, I had two brothers to work in the modern shop. Served the time there. And oh, a brother, he was a four-man plumber outside and he went away in the Olympic on her travelling to New York. She was a sister ship to the Titanic, uh, she wasn't was a she? Sister. That's right. Well, how were these boats built? Because at the time they were said to be the, the best in the world and they were unsinkable. Uh, well, I don't know. They were different now. They were... Uh, they only built them plate to plate, you know, at that time. Now they can build a section on and they build a shop and that and take them out. They have the cranes and all now. But at that time, I remember nothing, only a steam wedge, uh, an old donkey boiler for driving it, for taking the plates up and they put them in the place, put a boat or two in them, and then the riveters come and the whole riveters come up. Uh, when you were working on the Titanic, uh, did you know she was going to be a, a, the best ship of her kind? Oh, yes, everybody thought that. What uh, was the reaction when you heard she'd been sunk? Ah, oh, it was very sad. Do you remember it? Oh, I do. I remember 
working on the night shift then. How did the word come through? Well, I felt very sad about it. And I couldn't believe it, you know. You, you believed, like many other people, that she was unsinkable, did you? Oh, I did. <laughs> and why do you think she went down then? Because you, you would know you were actually involved in making her. Uh, well, I don't know just the way she struck the iceberg, I think. And how was that? Long side, you know, just tore the whole side out of her and all the compartments. Were... And if she'd had a head-on collision, she might have survived it? Uh, well, she might have, you know. But uh, they were warned about these icebergs, the captain was, they took no heed of it. So you think the captain was at fault for heading further north uh, than he well, should have done? A good money said that. What about uh, getting away from East Belfast and the shipyards? How do you spend your leisure time? I do a lot of fishing. And I do a lot of hunting the ferrets. And Is this a, an attempt to escape from it all? Oh, it, it gets you away at the weekends. You know, it gets you, it relaxes the mind. I know it relaxes me. I go away every weekend. I'm away every Sunday or every Saturday. When I can get away, I'll be away. And take the family with you? Yes, I take a family with me on a Sunday. Or, and sometimes there, me and the boy there would go with me on a Friday night and I would take a tent and the care and away I go. Whole weekend. A lot of people in East Belfast do that? They do, yes. They do indeed. It's more or less relaxation. It gets the good air, country air at you. They could see air. What about going down south? Do you ever think of that? I would love to go down south. Why don't you? I'm a bit scared. Go down. Well, I think an earth wouldn't happen. I would imagine that I was down with my boy or something. I was facing some some lake, and I wouldn't be content. I'd be looking all around me to see if I was going to get shot or something. Or play up. It's a terrible feeling. It's not like that at all. Oh uh, well, it's a terrible feeling I've got, and I wouldn't like. You know, once it's in, it stays in. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's hard to shake it from it's your mind. It's hard to shake. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's, it's uh, quite a different country than what you've been led to believe. Mm-hmm. Could you be tempted down at all? Oh, I would I would go flying if somebody would guarantee me be all right. I would love to fish the lakes, I would. Love to get a day on them. Shipbuilding today is in decline. The oil crisis in 1974 proved there had been overproduction on a world scale. As a result, shipbuilding nations have agreed to reduce capacity and EEC credit has been tightened with the object of cutting production in half by 1980. Policy for many governments is geared toward protecting jobs in the industry rather than making profits. And this applies particularly in Belfast, where the yards have consumed over £60 million in subsidies over the past few years. While Harland and Wolf have the most modern equipment in these islands, have improved productivity and have a good union record, they are subject to the whims of international trade. And the facts today are cruel. Britain, for instance, has laid up more ships than ever before. Norway, too, is feeling the pinch. Japan is in the process of closing 63 yards. And the Scottish locks provide convenient, permanent moorings for redundant oil tankers.
a gloomy outlook indeed. I think it's extremely bleak. I think that uh, the position in Norway today, and we've just come back from Oslo, and therefore we've seen it firsthand, I think all the shipyards in the whole of the world, including the Japanese, are in for a very, very thin time, for quite a long time. In fact, I don't think there'll be much demand until the early to mid-1980s. And the giants on the Lagan, 1978 style, take the shape of two 330,000 ton monsters, the biggest ships ever built in this part of the world. They lie unwanted, the subject of international arbitration between Harlands and an American company which is looking for a way out of the deal. That's the hard news which makes the headlines. But this programme is about people and about a community which exists with its own character and traditions. The key to survival for the Belfast Yards may lie in diversification. And if the worst predictions of world economists are correct, it will take all the skills and all the resilience of a society forged by diversity and hard work to meet the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> 